and an elephant is a spear. Uh, turns out an elephant is none of those things, but that describes some of the physiology of, of an elephant. It describes how parts of it um, can be experienced. And isn't that just a wonderful illustration for us and God? Not only do we have our own unique experience of him, uh, which can be different to others as we engage with a particular aspect of who he is, but then we go on to extrapolate and build this huge doctrine over who God is. And based on that passionate understanding that we've come to, then turns out that we can't have fellowship with very many other people because they don't have the exact same revelation that we have. I don't know what God you know, but it's not my God. That's not my Jesus. My Jesus is like this. And so we have the tens of thousands of denominations that we have. We get a little bit of revelation and we run a mile with it. And we get so fired up about it. As if we really know him. And the same can be said about the revelation of the bridegroom. Who was... Who is the bride? Who is not the bride? Believe me, there's some doctrines around that that have seriously divided the church. Divide it still. So yes, God is, Jesus is, everything that we have experienced, each of us, but he's also so much more. He is saviour. And he needs to be saviour. But saviour does not describe everything that Jesus is. Saviour, Messiah, Christ, Redeemer. This is such a core revelation of who he is. But it is not all that he is. God has revealed him as son. He has revealed him as king, as high priest, as friend, as brother, as companion, as creator, as lamb, as lion, as lord, and as bridegroom. And I'd be interested to hear the case that you'd make to say that they're all synonyms. Lamb is not a synonym, a like word to lamb. Lamb and lion are not synonyms. They're kind of opposites. But in Christ, they find this wonderful complement as they speak to different aspects of who he is. He is bridegroom. And this is, a, this is a biggie, particularly as we come to see how the, the metaphor of the marriage covenant is, is written from start to finish throughout Scripture. When you see the Scriptures as this revealed, 
and you understand what Christ's role is in this marriage, then understanding him as bridegroom becomes a really big deal. And if we don't press in to both come into an understanding of this revelation, but then also choose to engage in it and participate in it, then we're missing out on something very big that God has been promising us, or at least offering us. So yes, Christ uh, wants us to know him as saviour, but he wants, us, he wants me to know him as more. He want, God wants me to know him as, as father, and he wants me to know him as friend and as lord. And I don't really know him as bridegroom. This has been, some, this has been a revelation which has been hidden for me to find and I'm finding it now and I'm excited about that I'm excited anytime I open a new door or a new door is open for me and I poke my head in and there's just this glorious riches sometimes it's scary and I don't want to step in but with faith when I do and I find there's this whole other aspect of God that I wasn't even really aware of it just blows my mind and I love that God blows my mind just constantly. Just when I think I've got him pinned down like I've got him in a box, suddenly he blows the box apart and, and laughs at me <laughs> and smiles at me. I have got so much more to show you. And this is what this is, is for me. I certainly have only the most tentative grasp on this. I'm not here to teach you about the bridegroom. I want to walk with you into this. And I've, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I yeah we we missed the ball and how we named this uh, this module and how we set it up because this is not a this is not a focus on the bride of Christ. This is a focus on Christ, and it always needs to be a focus on Him. And uh, yeah, so it doesn't matter. We'll we'll get a, a new logo printed, but. For now, we press into him. It's always about him. There is something very unique about the revelation of God as bridegroom, about what this metaphor reveals about his nature and about the way he wants to engage with us. This is something that's only been the last couple of months that I've really thought about, that these different revelations of of God, how he's revealed himself, uh, they are different. Without without trying to stretch a metaphor beyond what it is or uh, a revelation beyond what it's supposed to be, there are different aspects of God revealed in these, in these different revelations. Uh, and there are some that are peculiar to bridegroom. The metaphor of, of bride and groom is firstly one of companionship and partnership. I say it's firstly uh, a revelation of this because the first mention of a marriage, this is the reason we're given in Genesis chapter 2. From verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the sky, the, the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and enclosed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That there is where the Apostle Paul picks up in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Genesis 2 is about God and us, his church. Right then, he is picturing eternity. And what does he say he wants? companionship and a partner I don't believe for a second that God needs either a companion or a partner I believe that because within himself within the eternal community of the Trinity Father, Son and Spirit he has perfect unity he has perfect companionship he has no need within himself do you think he needed to, to grow up a whole race of humans to help him with all the hard work that he has? No, no, that's kind of silly when you put it that way, or any other way. Our all-powerful God doesn't need us to help with anything. I'm sure Adam probably would have gone okay naming the animals on his own. God wanted, he desired to partner with his creation. It's not that he needs, it's that he wants. And that is what I love about this revelation of bridegroom. It isn't for him about need, it is about desire. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verse eleven thirteen. Here is a trustworthy saying If we, we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. God doesn't need us on a throne next to him. But when he looks at eternity, that's what he sees. That's what he desires. He wants to share this with us. If there's any sense of need in God, that need would be in his having so much that it must be shared. And so we come along because we need. We are the fulfillment of his riches and his grace. And so in eternity, he is there partnered with us, reigning over creation. Desire is a significant aspect of the metaphor of the bride and groom. 
And Song of Songs gets explicit in describing this picture of a desire between the bride and the groom. Their relationship was not one of obligation, it was desire. For example, Song of Songs, chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. This is the groom speaking. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sina, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates, with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Who is this God? Because I'm not sure I know him. I don't know why this stuff doesn't get preached outside of a wedding where it's actually meant to talk about man and woman, not about God. Maybe it's because it's such a mature revelation. Maybe because it's it's scary. Maybe it's hard to think about God in these terms. Who thinks Song of Solomon was written as a resource for wedding sermons? That's really generous of God, thinking a kid like that and making sure that I've got material for my sermons by writing a book completely devoted to that. That was awesome. He's really prepared, isn't he? Or he is bigger and different than I thought he was. There is more to him than I knew. Who wants there to be more to God than they currently know? Even if it's different. Even if it's, from my fleshy perspective, a bit weird. 
reading this, trying to imagine God speaking this over me. I need a deeper maturity. But the love, the desire that this describes, the idea that God might have that for me, or for the the group of saints that I might be a part of, I, I, I want him to think about me and like that. Now he uses physical language to describe something spiritual. And that's what makes it not weird, but the most beautiful thing ever put to paper. This is, as it all is, a physical reality that actually is something spiritual. And it's always something spiritual. Who can have the intimacy that this scripture and a lot of others like it, who can have this kind of intimacy with God? Anyone? What I mean by that is, who does choose? What is a choice? Like if it's just a choice, like uh, Māori choice A, B, C, D, and B is bride, I'll tick the box. Where's that form? What is a what is it? What is the choice here? Is it a decision where there are path before you and you say I want that, or is it there's a path before you, and each day you get up, you've got to actually walk that path. Is it something that just happens in your head? Is it something you just say out loud, or is it something that you've got to actually pursue every day? If you don't seek intimacy with God, are you the one that he talks about as the bride? I don't know how many sermons I've preached on loving the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. But uh, what I'm pretty well equipped now is to say emphatically, I do not love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength and saying that is painful. But it's true. I don't. And I really want to. I really want to, but I don't yet. But he loves me and he's merciful. And so it's okay. But every day I get up, I want to learn how to know him and love him with all my heart and all my mind, my soul and my strength. Yeah, desire though, it's, it's got to go beyond just wanting something. You've got to actually do something with that. And I don't believe for a start that, that anything spiritually in me is accomplished by my own striving, by my work. But there's something active in this pursuit, there's something active in positioning myself to receive. I've never said that out loud, and I, I can't express how hard it was to actually say those words. Man, far out. Who is, who is the bride? 
Am I the bride? Are you the bride? Is Israel the bride? Is the church the bride? Is the bride the new Jerusalem? Is it a chosen few who have prepared themselves and rendered themselves worthy of such an honor? I have no idea. I, I have worked really hard on this. I have scoured every reference to a groom, a bridegroom, a wife, betrothal engagement, a wedding, a wedding feast, uh, companions of bridegrooms, virgins, uh, other references that you've got to take a step, but then you see that's, oh, that's part of it too. Uh, my father's house has many rooms. There's all this kind of stuff that's all mixed in there. Just pages and pages and pages and pages of scripture that paint this huge picture, which is all part of this. And depending on which chapter or verse I'm reading, I could say that, uh, yeah, I am the bride. No, no, you're the bride. No, the bride is Israel. Sorry, the church is Israel. Actually, explicitly says in Revelation, New Jerusalem is uh, uh, is the bride. Uh, or I could pull a few together and say it's those who prepared themselves and read themselves worthy of the honour. And from all of that, we'd have a number of not very large churches, but um, but right here we could we could just set it up tonight and have a lot of churches just preaching whatever whatever doctrine fits best. Uh, we didn't set out. Um, in this to have a great reveal and say, hey, this is the bride, and guess what? Most of you are in it. Yay. Um, this, this is about, about him. It's about, it's about the groom. The revelation I've received on the matter is that, well, at least to me, who the bride is, is irrelevant who the groom is is what is important turns out that there uh, isn't a list of criteria that we work towards and then we uh, we win uh, we win a ring and we uh, we get that great proposal and we're in scripture says the father chooses the bride he chooses. There's nothing I've read in Scripture which is any way to clear or infer that we should seek to be the bride. The Scriptures overwhelmingly implore us to seek the bridegroom. They tell us time and time again in so many ways, using so many illustrations and parables and metaphors, to seek Christ and to know him and to love him and to honor him and to follow him and obey him. And the Father will choose those that he chooses. Maybe he chooses those already. Maybe he chooses those who are prepared. Or maybe it's up to him and he gets to choose whoever he wants. And maybe we shouldn't worry about that. Like we have to convince him that we're worthy. Because you know we're not, right? It's not about worth. Father will choose the bride for his son. It's up to him. And he won't choose wrong. And the marriage that's painted throughout Scripture, this is not supposed to be a burden. The marriage covenant is not a burden. 
betrothal is not supposed to be a burden. They should be a joy, a hopeful expectation. And the marriage of the church to the Lamb will be. Now, one of the problems with any any of the metaphors used in Scripture for anything spiritual is that that metaphor was chosen because we we get an aspect of the metaphor because it's a metaphor from our lives. So we have an understanding of marriage because, well, some of us have been married and, and marriage is something which is common among us. The problem is with the marriages that we know is that they are that they are fallen, they are broken, some are better than others. But we're not perfect and our marriages aren't perfect. And so sometimes our understanding of what marriage is, that's broken because it's based on a faulty understanding of the metaphor and we take the metaphor too far beyond what God intended. There's so many illustrations in, in Scripture where we can do that. And we can struggle to come into the revelation of it because of our broken experiences. I don't know how many conversations I've had with with people who have struggled with God as father because of who their father was. Or the fact that their father wasn't in their life. Who is God the father if I don't know what a real father is or if my father was an angry drunk? Who is the groom if my husband ignores me or beats me or takes advantage of me. So with all these things, with understanding what love is, what understanding what marriage is supposed to be, what it, understanding what it means to, to raise children, we need to go to him who is the template for everything that is good and perfect. And so in him we find what a husband is supposed to be. And in the mirror of that we find what a wife is supposed to be. We find what children and the relationship with children and parents is supposed to be. The marriage metaphor is not about what we have to do. It's about who God is. God is holy. He is gracious. He is generous. He is strong. And he is loving. He is, in fact, love. The definition of it, the source of it. And that, more than anything else... The greatest of these is love. This more than anything else is what he needs us to know. The love of God. And that is what Greg is going to come up now and share some more on. Cheers, mate. Um, it's just what I, I guess I wrote down a question I wrote there was why is love the greatest have you ever stopped and asked that question why is love the greatest you know, it says faith, hope and love but the greatest of all these is love and so often we can just read 
his truth, but we never ask questions of his truth, so we never go on a journey to discover answers that are right in front of us. Um, I find it fascinating that so many people chase after gifts. I've just been away for two and a half days in Hamilton, and it was awesome. We talked about, well, the, the, the actual thing was called School of the Spirit. And so it was all about talking about uh, having a knowledge of God within you and living from that reality. In my 15 years of being a follower, I'd predominantly say I've met more people who want to and are interested in the gifts and how they use their gifts than they are about love. It's been the constant thing, and you go to conferences and it's all about getting people equipped in their gifts. How do you motivate and mobilize people in their gifts? And you don't really hear too much about love. I haven't anyway. And if I'm being honest, it's probably only been the last five years that I've preached more about love than I have preached about anything else. And I've asked questions like, why does God go to the length to place it even as scripture that it says things like, you know, if you just chase gifts, if you prophesy but you don't have love, you're a gong. And he takes the time to go through a list of things to show you that you can have all these things and you can chase all these things, but if you don't actually have love, then it's a complete waste of time. So why is love so important? Because it's the basis of every relationship, isn't it? And the problem with us is that we have been poisoned by partaking of a tree of good and evil. And so we have this insatiable need in us to do. And God's put it there. But unless we allow him to lead us back to our original state through the power of his Holy Spirit, then that remains and we'll just find our worship out of doing. Our worship will be out of function and not out of relationship and love. And yet, if we applied that to any relationship on the planet Earth, it wouldn't last. If my marriage is just about what I do for my wife and it's all about what she does for me, that would not last five minutes. It's probably why marriages don't last. Because it's not centered and anchored in love. And God is no different. And so before we're ever supposed to be doing anything, he just wants us to be with him and allow him to define what our doing will even look like. And that's how you can find a group of people in Matthew seven twenty one. You know, if we were to put two two pages up here and write, reach the loss, feed the poor, heal the sick, serve, and list all the things. And over this side, put the same list. What would separate those two pages? Because they look exactly the same. What can't you see? What you can't see is the heart behind those two things. You can't see the motivation behind those two things. So two people can do exactly the same, be looking the same way, but one group of people on this side hear something that those people don't hear, and they hear, away from me, for I never knew you. How can that be possible? See, it's always been about a circumcision of the heart to create a motivation of love because it's always been way bigger than just doing stuff for Jesus.
And um, I just want to read out of uh, 2 Peter. Where are you, 2 Peter? Peter because it says the bride will make herself ready so 2 Peter 1 2 or this people are going to be preparing themselves for something so as Clay just said let's let's just be a people that are preparing and the best we prepare then it may result in the outcome being are people who are the bride or people who are priests or sons. So we're to focus on the preparation, not the outcome. Amen? But once again, it's really hard. See, when you've got an insatiable need to do, you focus on outcomes. How do I get to that outcome as quick as possible? <laughs> and in here, we'll find some keys, things... It says here, one, 2 Peter 1 verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power, everyone say his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious promises and magnificent, sorry, his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So there's this thing called power that's contained within him, and that power is to be in us. And when that power is operating, it opens up a realm. And God gives us these promises to create life. And that life is within us. And it's to be in us, which enables us to partake of a divine nature, which is his nature coming forth from us. So do we even know that power? Because once again, it's of a spiritual dimension. It's not of a physical reality. It's contained within the Spirit of God, and the Spirit is to live within us because it has a purpose. And the purpose of this whole thing, as it states here, Peter just explains it beautifully. It's very simple. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, so that by them the promises, we can become partakers of a divine nature. See, this whole thing is about a spiritual dimension. It's got nothing to do with the physical, which means I can keep a whole set of commandments and it's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. I can think I'm being a good lad and tick boxes, keep the law, keep the Torah, keep the great commandment, all those things, and it can be completely irrelevant. Why? Because there's no life. There's no power. I'm just keeping a set of do's and don'ts, a set of rules. But when those things are ignited through the power of the Holy Spirit, and those things are in me, then I start preparing myself. The very exchange that happens start to prepare myself, and I'm actually able 
to love like him. Now that may sound impossible, but it's fully possible. And that's sort of what I just want to touch on is just one of the attributes of a people group who are making themselves ready, they are able and becoming able to love like him. Do you believe that? See, if you never believe it, it will never happen. Will it? What you think you will speak and what you speak you will live out. And what you speak becomes your reality. So you'll speak death, you will live death. If you speak life, you will live life. And this whole thing we're doing is not to get caught up in principles and commandments and ticking boxes and doing things. All those things that are of him are to be revealed in us. So we live from his life in us, which means then we're able to demonstrate his reality. Christianity is not about an intellectual exercise where you store up a whole lot of information, whether it's Hebrew, Greek, Japanese, or English, shove it in your head and go, I understand it. Christianity is about the demonstration of Christ's life in his people coming out of his people. It's a practical thing. It's huge. And it's fully possible in him. So how do we know if we're being prepared? How do we actually know if we're becoming ready? One of the things is you'll have his fruit in you and you'll be able to demonstrate it. And ultimately, that's what he says to Peter. Come with me to John 13. See, these people that are becoming ready, whatever you want to call them, the sons of God, the bride, priests, kings, they will love like the groom. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A new commandment I'm going to give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Does he love us unconditionally? So do you believe it's possible for you and I to love 1 Corinthians 13 love? A love that is patient. If we are not patient, what happens? God's not patient with us. How many of us are standing here today? I put the mic down on the first out the door. But love is patient. It is fully possible for us to be patient. Not with my version of patience, 
but with his version because it's his love. And see, Jesus, I loved you. He's stating this commandment. He's, it's, this has been in this book forever. And Peter's response is really interesting because Peter's not really interested in the commandment. All he's interested in doing is ministry. All he's interested in doing, he says this, Lord, where are you going? Don't worry about that. That's not what I told you to do. So he continues. And he says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus says, oh, will you? See, Jesus always knows the outcome because he sees into the future. Poor Peter didn't. And Jesus is saying to him, hey, here's a new commandment. Go in love. Why? Why? What's in loving one another that he's trying to do a work in us? But because Peter's got this insatiable need to be a hero and to transform the world, he's not even listening to the commandment because he's got his own agenda and he's missing out on something as we know God's love is so incredible because it redeems him doesn't it he says you know Satan has asked to sift you and you there and he says to him but you know what he says after he sifted you and after you've fallen over basically and denied me I'm going to come back and grab you then I'm going to baptize you in the power of 2 Peter. See, that's why he wrote the book. Because he'd experienced the reality. And then you're going to be able to fulfill that commandment. John 15.10 If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So once again, it's not about just keeping some laws or some commandments. It's about allowing the power that sits behind that commandment to enter into us through the Holy Spirit. So then we're actually abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in us. So he abides in us. I just don't know whether I abide in him at times. That's why he can be in you, but there's no abiding. It's a two-way streak, isn't it? I abide in you. Will you abide in me? Well, there's a challenge. John seventeen twenty-six. And I have made your name known to them. This is, the, this is Christ speaking about his Father. And I, Christ, have made your, Lord, my Father, name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them. What does it mean to know God? What does it really mean to know him? This is what I was talking about when I was up in Hamilton.
We use this word intimacy. I believe true intimacy is the true knowledge that you carry of him for who he actually is in you. It's not me sitting in the corner with my music on, having a nice time. As much as I love doing that, that's not intimacy. It's not having a nice romantic meal with candlelight and the Holy Spirit's there and I'm there and we're talking. That's awesome. I believe true intimacy is the knowledge of God that we carry, which is actually who He is in us. That's why John says, if you continue in my word, who's the word? If you continue in Jesus, then what? John 8, 30, 31. If you continue in my word, so you will know the truth. Who's the truth? And the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from everything. So you've got to ask yourself, how free am I? Because what he's saying is, the greater that you know love, because Jesus is love and God is love, the greater that you know him where within you, the greater the freedom of life the greater the demonstration you're able to be because why? Because it's Christ-like in you coming out of you. Why is love the greatest? Because God is love. And where's God to be? In us. And when God is in us, then we're able to demonstrate love because it's Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. Which then makes that commandment doable. I'm going to read you 1 John. And I'm going to just read you a series of scriptures. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to read 1 John. But it is so clear. And although this is a slightly different love that he talks about, so there's agape and agapeho, and agape is 1 Corinthians 13, and agapeho is a love that you commit to. It's a love that you will choose to lay one's life down for. And I'm just going to read this and just let these words sink into your spirit. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Once again, I'm not talking about keeping a set of rules because the rich young ruler did that. And Jesus said, there's one thing you lack is I can see straight into your heart and I see all oh, you've kept my commandments, son. You're well off beat. So once again, you can keep all the commandments you like and not come into the reality he's talking about here. 
because it's about a circumcision of the heart that produces a work through the power of the Holy Spirit. Come over to... I put little dots in these. Where are my dots gone? 1 John 3, verse 10. By this the children of God... This is quite interesting. And the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Come down to 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. See, it's easy to say, yeah, I love. It's another thing to demonstrate his love because it's worked in you. It's easy yourself to call yourself a son of God. It's another thing to live as a son of God. See, we love giving ourselves one half of the picture in name. But the name has to back up indeed. And if a true work is done, you'll be like him. You'll have name indeed. Galatians talks about there's no point saying you're a son of God than living like a slave. So yes, his love covers, but he wants you in the fullness of the reality of sonship. Amen. It's the same with this love. It's really all the same thing. It's him. Groom, son, father, king. He's only one God. It's just the greater the depth in which he reveals himself in you, you'll understand the whole. The three become one. Here, O Israel, I am one. It's just the measure of the depth that you have, that you actually carry. And it's okay. See, on the revelation of the Christ, the Christ is love, the Christ is God, on the revelation of that, I, through the power of my Holy Spirit, will build you. Because the goal is your and my transformation. Before it's about anything else. And from that position, we go. Because we are being prepared for an eternal purpose. I keep, I'm just going to keep reading these scriptures. These scriptures are phenomenal. The amount he talks about loving one another. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Listen to this. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Not knows about God, but knows him Intimately, What's that word again? Has a true knowledge of God for who he is because God has revealed himself in a person through the power of the Holy Spirit. That will spark something within us which then we are able and capable to love one another as Christ loves. It's very humbling this because you start realizing how impossible it is for you and I to do it. That's the whole point. It's supposed to actually bring you to a place of weakness so you realize, I can't do this. 
I need you to come and do this in me. It was the greatest point of my life when I realized I can't, because then you stop. You actually stop, and you're brought to a place of humility in the Spirit, and you realize you're so dependent on Him to do it. It's freeing. It's actually the opposite of what you think it's going to be. It's the day that freedom comes, because now you can stop from all religious practice and religious stuff, and going, oh, I've got to do it, I've got to do it, and you go, I just can't. And he goes, great, well done, well for figuring that out. Because you've been running around for 20 years and that's why you're exhausted and you're burnt out because you've been trying to do it. But you can't. And there is an authentic power, guys, in the Holy Spirit. There is an authentic work in the Spirit where the Spirit comes through that acknowledgement of humility and vulnerability and dependency. And I can't tell you when it happens, how it happens. I just know it happens. But the heart is at a state of, it just goes, I, I can't. Paul found it. Peter found it. These people, these men who have found this position and live from another reality. But we have to let go to find it. And he's stating this incredible thing here. See, for God is, is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. He says this in 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's all about in us. It's all in you coming out from you. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. So it's you have a confidence going into the day of judgment. You actually can look forward to it. Why? Because this work is being done within you. It creates a confidence because you know it's happening. You know you're loving like Him. You know you're able to demonstrate something, especially in the face of persecution and opposition, because that's when you are really tested. He says it's easy to love the one that loves you. It's easy, but what about loving the one that doesn't love you? When you are persecuted, when you are misrepresented, when you are lied about, when you are spoken badly about, when you are attacked, whether it's by Christians or non-Christians, what comes forth from you? The same spirit that's attacking you or an opposite spirit? Is it Christ coming forth or is it you do not know what spirit is operating right now? See, here's the challenge for us. Because obviously we would hope that a love would come out that's not of this realm, not my human love, but Christ's love in me, and I'm able to love my brother, and not only love him, but pray for him, even if he is smacking me. Does that sound like Stephen? I've preached this before. See, this is fully possible to say the words that Christ said when Stephen said, do not hold this sin against this, these people. 
See, we are called to be so different from the world. And we're called to be able to demonstrate something that's so different from the world. And we can't get caught up in principles and commandments and stuff. All that we've been teaching, my hope is that we wouldn't get entangled with that. But all that would lead us to Christ, the life of Christ. And that life of Christ would be in us and being formed and birthed in us. So then we're able to be the demonstration of wisdom, which is Christ. It's all the same thing. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Love in you is the hope of glory. The Spirit of God in you is the hope of glory because God is one. And it just goes on and on. So why is love the greatest? Because he wants to have a people group that are able to demonstrate his reality on the earth so people can see him. And those people will be rewarded in the day of judgment. See, that's just one aspect. It talks about a joy and a peace, which is still him. You're looking at me. Somebody looking at me a little bit bizarre. I know it sounds. Does it sound massive? It sounds unattainable. Maybe. Maybe I shouldn't even speak that. Maybe I should just say no. It's not. It's always been showing me. See, it's like it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle with man. We know that picture. Yeah, okay. Camel bow down the gate and the temple and all that, but. What he's truly saying is, the kingdom of God is within us. It's a spiritual transformation of the kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming, literally, but the kingdom at the moment is here. It's what Jesus said. And it is to be being built within us. Well, it's possible, sorry, it's impossible with man for that to happen. But it's fully possible with God. As man surrenders to God, See, the rich young ruler wouldn't surrender what was truly in his heart, even though he kept commandments. There's one thing you lack, son. It's got nothing to do with that. It's what that is. And if you'll surrender and get that vulnerable with me, the power of my spirit's going to come, and it's going to do a work within you, which is going to form me in you, which you'll have my rivers of living water in you, and you will be able to love what you think was once impossible. You'll find yourself doing it. And you'll be astounded, and you'll know where it's come from, and you'll give me glory. Taste and see that I am good. You see, once we taste of him to this measure, sight comes. Understanding comes. You you see him in a way that you've never seen. See, it's like going diving. It's like you put a tank on your on your back and you go 30 metres down at the Great Barrier, you'll see fish that are purple and yellow and orange and multicoloured. You'll see species that you can't see at a metre from the top when you're snorkelling. And someone could come up from there at 30 metres and say, Amwa, the fish down there 
are incredible, man. They've got eyes the size of this, they're color to this color. Have you seen them? I've just seen these gray ones that sort of sit around the top. Do you want to see them? I don't even think they're possible. I, th- I think you're, you're lying to me. I don't think you're telling me the truth. I'm telling you the truth. There's these fish down here. Do you want to come diving? I don't know. You hear what I'm saying? If you taste of him in a way that's truly him, you will see him. And that sight revealed within you will start creating such life that it literally will be like a life of overflow. This is how one of the ways we know is we're coming more and more into this reality. We're being prepared. It says, blessed are the persecuted. For those people will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those that are humble in spirit. See, you can do an act of humility. I could wash Fiona's feet, and that could be an act of humility, but that doesn't mean I have a spirit of humility. It's just an action. But I could have that spirit of humility and wash her feet. But how do you know? Only he truly knows the heart of man, doesn't he? And so there's such a work, a beautiful work that he's doing and has been doing. And there is a love to be found, to be tasted, to be seen. And it will prepare us for this incredible time in the future. When he, as Clay said, he's deciding, not us. Just just keep our eyes on him. Let's allow his truth to define who we are. His truth, not our version of it, remember? His truth. Let's commit to what we're doing, walk together, and allow him to change this thing that he's given us called a mind so life can come. Because the challenge is this. We are to give testimony to this life. We have to be the demonstration of something, of him. And that's a challenge. I know that's a massive challenge. But it's fully possible. It's fully possible in him. Amen. So, Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, as we discuss questions. I pray, Lord, I I can't, none of us can do this. God, I wish I could at times. Wish I could give a pill. And things would happen. But you don't do it that way, Lord. So Holy Spirit, you've been given the job of leading us into a reality of the Spirit. And my prayer is, Father, that you would reveal yourself in us. You would reveal yourself to the measure that our heart would cry tonight. Lord, I pray that there are things that we need to put right with you. I pray we would do that. Because you don't build on foundations that aren't of you. But Lord, we want to position ourselves as your people to be able and capable through the power of your spirit to be able to live this life that you're calling us to live. And so, Lord, we ask you to come now 
and reveal yourself through the power of your spirit. So we live from your life. We are new creations, not old ones trying to renew the old. We are new creations. We haven't been this way before. And it is of a spiritual dimension in us. And so, Father, I can only ask and we can only ask. So we ask with a heart of humility, but with a heart of courage and boldness to be obedient to what you might want to say and have us do. In Jesus' name, amen.